Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome to this uh, tall round about the treatment options and interventions for anom anomalies of the coronary arteries, which has actually become a pretty big business for us. And, and uh, the increased awareness about this these issues is uh, resulting in increasing number of referrals, and we have some ex exciting new options to offer these patients. Old ones have been simplified, and, and uh, new ones have come, so it will be an interesting session. I think the first uh, uh, case will be, first uh, presentation will be a case presentation by Kelvin Schenk. Hi, uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Calvin. I'm one of the cardiology fellows here, uh, and I'm going to be just presenting some of the cases. One of the first cases is an 18-year-old gentleman who um, had an incidental finding of anomalous uh, right coronary artery arising from the left uh, sinus valsalva with an interarterial course uh, during um, just routine screening for a family history of hokum. That was back in about 2015. And in 2016, had a negative um, ammonia uh, PET study for ischemia. Um, and unfortunately, earlier this year, suffered a sudden uh, cardiac arrest, um, VFib with three shocks during a basketball game. Underwent some invasive hemodynamic evaluations, which will be discussed later. And ultimately had successful division and reimplantation of that right coronary artery. And these are just some representative uh, images from um, his pre-op. Uh, cath. Um, on the left there uh, is an LAO view um, of his um, anomalous coronary artery, um, as well as uh, his IVAS findings, um, and he had a positive IFR of 0 0.84 um, during stress with IV dobutamine and um, atropine. And on the right is kind of his pre-op, and on the bottom, um, his post-op CTs kind of showing the takeoff is RCA um, with kind of, you know, that um, uh, narrow compression there. Um, and in the second case, uh, this is a 20-year-old gentleman with kind of chronic exertional dyspnea and fatigue since childhood. He was also found to have an almost left coronary artery um, that's arising from the right sinus valsalva, also with an interarterial course and an intramural segment. Um, a couple years ago, underwent his invasive uh, hemodynamic testing and ultimately had successful unroofing of about eight to nine millimeter segment of intramural uh, segment. Um, and during his follow-up, he's been doing very well without any new complaints. And these are kind of his representative images. Um, on the left, you have um, an LAO view of his um, coronary anatomy. And then on the right is his IVUS finding. You can see kind of um, when you get into that intramural segment, kind of a slit-like compression. Um, and he also indeed had positive IFR findings um, of 0 0.75 during stress with IV dobutamine. And post-op, actually... Um, and here again, you know, it's on cath, it's hard to really um, visualize well kind of the compression. But on IVAS, you really get the sense kind of pre and post that um, you don't have nearly as much or um, of that kind of intramural uh, slit-like compression. And he actually had negative IFR testing um, in his post-op of 0.9 during stress. 
And these are kind of his representative uh, CTs from pre-op on the left and post-op on the right, where on the left you see kind of that narrow uh, slit-like compression again with a very angulated takeoff. And on the right, um, it just uh, is a little bit better. And then um, in the third case, it's a 62-year-old female initially presented for exertional angina. That was back in 2009. Had both LAD and uh, circumflex ischemia, and that was ultimately how they found she had anomalous left coronary arising from the right sinus of Alsalva with a transeptal course. Um, and then she underwent a two-vessel cabbage with two vein grafts. Unfortunately, about eight years later, developed recurrent symptoms, and they found that she had interval occlusions of both of the vein grafts. And then a year later, um, came to us, had invasive testing, and ultimately had successful transconal um, unroofing of that transeptal segment, um, as well as RVOT reconstruction uh, with autologous pericardial patch. And these are uh, her representative um, findings. Uh, her pre-op cath on the left with her IVUS. Um, if, and I apologize if the IVUS is not playing here due to technical reasons. But again, um, she had very positive IFR finding with 0.32 during stress. And then um, after her procedure, um, you know, as you can tell, it was very successful with an IFR now of 0 0.92. Um, and uh, the IVIS shows that, you know, she does not have any of the uh, compressions, dynamic compressions that we saw pre-op. And again, these are kind of her representative CTs from pre-op um, and post-op. And imaging uh, will be discussed later. Thank you for this opportunity to present the cases. My topic was controversies. Obviously, that's a massive topic that we're not going to cover in great detail today. So let's cone it down to something that we actually can speak objectively about. How does the adult population with anomalous aortic origin differ compared to a pediatric population? How do these adults present? What is their morphology? How do we deal with them surgically and what are those outcomes? And most importantly, what is the impact of concomitant cardiac pathology that is not present in pediatric populations, which arguably have been better characterized to this point, and specifically with regard to coronary artery disease and aortic valve pathology? So today I'm going to share with you some insights that will address a few of these issues and share some findings that will actually raise additional questions. And I want to acknowledge Mikey Jiang, uh, now Dr. Jiang, who is one of our residents and has done a phenomenal amount um, in this space. So thank you, Mikey, for sharing all of your data with me. So there has been a tremendous amount of focus on understanding AOCA in the young population because of the high risk of sudden cardiac death. However, we know that adults with anomalous aortic origin also comprise a significant portion of this cohort. So while the CHSS, the existing cohorts here, have comprised an impressive registry of pediatric patients and those that are restricted to under age 30 years at diagnosis, there really has been very few studies looking at the adult population. So this cohort of primarily adults with anomalous aortic origin was assembled here at the Cleveland Clinic to help us understand some of the questions I mentioned earlier. 
we know that adult patients potentially, as we hypothesized, might be diagnosed at an older age and may differ from their pediatric population. Note on this slide that the pediatric population, the surgical threshold we hypothesized might be higher, and that the adult population, many of them may actually be diagnosed later and lie below the th surgical threshold until some inflection point at which time the development of associated cardiovascular anomalies, specifically coronary artery disease, might lead to an increase in diagnosis and therapy. So we turned to the Cleveland Clinic data and we looked at a slice of this two-year period and really excluded all pediatric patients and those without aortic anomalous aortic origin. That left us with a population in this two-year period of 167 patients. And from there, we looked at those patients who underwent surgical intervention, any cardiac surgery, and those who had concomitant repair of their AOCA or isolated repair. So one of the fundamental questions I mentioned was how do these patients present? What prompted them to come to medical attention? And we found that the majority of these patients actually were symptomatic with either chest pain or shortness of breath. That's here shown in blue. And then the second most common presentation was patients presenting for cardiac evaluation for either concomitant cardiac surgery or non-cardiac surgery. The next question was to characterize the morphology of the anomalous coronary artery. We speculated that adults with anomalous aortic origin may benefit from lead time bias, the phenomenon that they may have a less malignant phenotype because they have survived to adult life. These clustered histograms show the age at diagnosis stratified by what the, uh, the anatomy of the coronary. The anomalous rights from the left sinus are shown in blue and the anomalous lefts in origin and then the uh, denominator here shown in other colors. What you will note is that the majority of patients, in fact, 90% of patients were diagnosed after age 30. And as we anticipated, the anomalous rights predominated in later life. So in other words, anomalous lefts were diagnosed earlier, potentially um, proving our hypothesis that these represent a less malignant, I don't wanna use the term benign, so less malignant phenotype. The other question was, what was, how did we operate on these patients? Why did we operate? What was the anatomy of the surgical cohort? So as we mentioned, the rights were more common overall as we know, Oops. but what we found was that the rights actually had a greater prevalence of both interarterial and intramural course potentially not just the increased prevalence of anomalous rights in general, but also the phenotype of the rights was different than the anomalous lefts. So um, surgical repair, um, we felt that this may be significantly different than how we approach this in the pediatric population, specifically with regard to uh, revascularization with cabbage, and in fact, that was indeed the case. 18 head unroofing, which is pretty typical among the pediatric population, but a not insignificant proportion had coronary artery bypass grafting, and three, in fact, had ligation of their proximal segment, three uh, reimplantation. 
and aorta coronary window. Now, um, how did we deal with patients with concomitant pathology? If you remember from the first slide, one of the perspectives we had was that these patients may present with a burden of cardiovascular disease that complicates both their evaluation and their therapy. And this was indeed the case. So there was 59 patients who had any open cardiac surgery. And interestingly, 17 had surgery, but the anomalous aortic origin was not addressed. The remainder had concomitant cardiac surgery. What were these? Well, the majority were aortic valve operations and then coronary artery bypass grafting to another coronary with significant atherosclerotic disease. So in conclusion, from this initial study, there was a significant older age at diagnosis and presentation. Concomitant disease, as I mentioned, was much more prevalent and can actually complicate the evaluation of these patients. And the surgeries to deal with these are varied. So quickly, I want to just highlight a study that is ongoing as a follow-up to this. As we mentioned that coronary artery disease is more prevalent potentially in adults, we speculated that there may be an increased predilection to the development of atherosclerotic disease in the anomalous aortic origin, uh, the coronary with an anomalous origin, either from uh, turbulence or whatnot. But interestingly, from this initial look at these patients, and there's over a thousand that we still need to go through, but of this initial population, if you look at the bottom here, this dot plot actually shows that they are equivalent. So we defined any uh, coronary artery disease as any stenosis greater than 10%, and they were equivalent among the anomalous and the normal aortic origins. The median stenosis in these vessels was equivalent, whether it be right, left, or another coronary distribution. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.